Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Hamas is cracking. They're surrendering. This war could be over soon. Full-scale surrender. Total abandonment of the area. Control by the Israelis until control can be given to somebody else. And a better life for the Gazans could come. Oh, it'll take a generation or two. Because sometimes you have to work out that mindset. Wait till they learn that Jews weren't their problem. But Hamas was. Some of them already know it. Some of them are going to need to learn. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. 833, got Tony. 833-468-8669. I'm going to get into it. I'm going to get into what's going on with the college presidents and some of the most radical conversation trying to avoid responsibility and deflect to a free speech conversation. Although there's always room for a free speech conversation. I'll get to that as well. But can we focus for just a moment as we have from the beginning? The border is the biggest story in America. I'm here at the Lukeville Port of Entry to assess the situation on the ground firsthand and get Customs and Border Patrol the resources they need to reopen our port of entry. Border security is a top priority, and as long as I'm governor, I'll do whatever I can to end the chaos at the border. I'm not afraid to stand up to politicians on either side who aren't doing what's in the best interests of Arizona. And I'm taking action. This week, I sent a letter to President Biden demanding the resources and manpower to open this port of entry and we announced Operation Secure to step up state support for local law enforcement. But Arizona can't do this alone, nor should we have to. We're asking the federal government to reimburse us for the costs uh, to Arizonans. For far too long, Arizona has borne the brunt of federal inaction on our southern border, and I'm tired of it. Now is not the time for partisan politics. It's time for action. That's Katie Hobbs who has been described in Arizona as, and I'm quoting, a Muppet. The Democrat, Katie Hobbs, who literally ran no campaign whatsoever and beat Carrie Lake, she's saying that the Biden administration isn't doing enough. They asked for like $512 million. The southern border is the biggest story in America. This is a recording you have got the the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, saying very clearly, you're not actually thinking that this government, this federal government is going to help you, New York, are you? Because these people have been pretty dang clear. We are at an untenable situation right now, and it is painful for us. Uh, it is painful for the city. And I think that you see it being reflected in the polls. It is because our federal government 
actions have taken a toll on the people of this city. Uh, we're going to continue to do our job um, in this administration, uh, but it's, these are extremely challenging times. And as I left uh, Washington, D.C., I did not leave with optimism. I left with the cold reality uh, that uh, help is not on the way in the immediate uh, future. It is going to be at this moment, it's going to be up to New Yorkers and this administration to continue to navigate this, this challenge that we're facing. The administration has got nothing to bring. This is why we did Border Week. And we're going to be doing it all week. I've been doing interviews over the last a month with, with policy people, with people who have been on the ground. Uh, former Border Patrol uh, Chief, Sector Chief uh, Chris Clem. Uh, people uh, from the world of, of, of sports. Uh, Randy Grimes, former center for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who's been working with Border Patrol and the morale issues there. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Where are the policy issues? What are the money issues? Does the wall work? By the way, it does. So many pieces. But we're not even addressing them on, on, on their most basic elemental level. It's time uh, for both uh, Hobbs and, and Adams, and they have said it, but the echo needs to grow larger. You only fix a problem by fixing it. And until you tell squad members to shut the hell up, you don't have a say in this thing. You want open borders. You're freaks. Here's what we need. Let's start here. Could we start with just a basic and getting rid of the fentanyl? Well, that comes through legal ports of entry. Did anybody ask whether it came legally or illegally? And by the way, it comes both. Stop it from coming. Let us have at least a focus on this. Can't even get that. So that's why we did Border Week. And that's what we're going to be getting into later on the show. As for Hamas, the people out there, members of of Hamas, these terrorist lowlifes, who are giving up, they're surrendering to Israeli forces. This is welcome news. Now, I have concerns about the surrendering because I don't trust any of these lowlifes, any of these disgusting, despicable, terrible people. Uh, Trust the terrorist? No thanks. But they are starting to crack. And um, Benjamin Netanyahu has been very uh, clear. Do not, do not uh, die for Sinwar. Who's Sinwar? Uh, Yeah, Sinwar is um, the head of Hamas in Gaza. Now, he's not the head of Hamas, you know, living the good life with the billions of dollars in Qatar. He, Yahya Sinwar, Y-A-H-Y-A, first name Sinwar, S-I-N-W-A-R, is the guy leading things in Gaza. And based on every conversation piece, oh, they hate the dude. Well, what's to like? Why would anybody in, in Gaza actually like him? There's no food. There's no electricity. There's nothing but destruction. 
Residents are writing, what corruption? We are a family of four with refugees among us struggling to find or buy food. We're denied aid. The police informed us the representative that distributing aid was prohibitive, prohibited. And then, of course, you get the ever popular that these organizations are ruining our lives just like the Jews. See, this is why, and it's important uh, to remember, um, that you, when, when Hamas is destroyed, you can't just let Hamas, uh, or I should say Gaza, run itself. It's going to take a generation, maybe two, to get this Jew hatred out of their heads. Hamas is your enemy. If Israel lets in the aid and Hamas steals the aid, Israel clearly isn't the issue here. Your issue is this terrorist organization, and that's going to take time. As other people have stated to press that have been in Gaza, all the aid goes down to the tunnels. It doesn't reach the people. Everything goes to their homes. They take everything. Even when reporters are like, well, what about this? And they do that for you because there are plenty of Hamas-aligned reporters. These people know. No matter how much they're, they're trained to blame Israel, they know what's what. But you can't just simply destroy Hamas and let... Uh, the the people of Gaza control things. You, you'll still have the same problem. You got to change mindsets. That's going to take time. As for the United States, well, they're just angry that a ceasefire hasn't come. How dare the United States not be pushing for a ceasefire? You've got the head of the UN, the Secretary General Guterres, trying to invoke Article 99, has not been invoked since 1971. What does Article 99 do? It would allow to bring to the attention of the Security Council, quote, any matter which, in his opinion, may threaten the maintenance of international peace and security, meaning utilizing the UN to try and apply pressure to bring forth a ceasefire. Now, we all know that a ceasefire is nutty. A ceasefire is a ridiculous position. What you didn't know is that Bernie Sanders, that's right, the commie, agrees with you. Hold on a second, Bernie. I wasn't ready for you. Now I'm ready for you. Well, first of all, I strongly support and wish and hope that the United States will support the United Nations Resolution that was vetoed, that we vetoed the other day. That was a humanitarian pause, a humanitarian ceasefire that would have, by the way, called for the release of all of the hostages held by Hamas and would have allowed the UN and other agencies to begin to supply the enormous amount of humanitarian aid that Mm -hmm. the Palestinian people... In terms of a permanent ceasefire, I don't know how you could have a permanent ceasefire with Hamas who has said before October 7th and after October 7th, that they want to destroy Israel, they want a permanent war. I don't know how you have a permanent ceasefire with an attitude like that. I don't know how you think you have a temporary ceasefire with an attitude like that, Bernie. I mean, you 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 hit the 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 points properly, and then you 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 fail. 
some humanitarian pause is okay, permanent ceasefire. It, I mean, it's just silliness. This is what happens when you aren't willing to actually win a fight. But Representative Ocasio-Cortez is apoplectic, criticizing the Biden administration because the U.S. vetoed a U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire, wrote that it was shameful, writing, and I quote, the Biden administration can no longer reconcile their professed concern for Palestinians and human rights while also single-handedly vetoing the U.N.'s call for ceasefire and sidestepping the entire U.S. Congress to unconditionally back the indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. Representative Ocasio-Cortez, you Jew-hating freak. Let's be clear about a couple of things between us. You're not bright. And, you know, I've always said, I don't know you personally. You could be a lovely friend, a good daughter. I, I wouldn't know these things. I only know your policies. And your policies are childlike. And I only know your positions. Your positions are Jew-hating. So I don't plan on treating you very well in these types of dialogues anymore. I don't know why I, I mean, I'm supposed to be the one who extends all the grace. Gaza is not being indiscriminately bombed. Hamas is being destroyed. And you should be in favor of it. But you can't favor it because your hatred of Israel overwhelms your desire to see a better tomorrow. Your friendships are your problems. Jeremy Corbyn, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, this is your issue. You hang out with bad people, with bad minds. We're talking about their policies are unbelievably, remarkably flawed. And then you sit there and lecture like somehow you know decency. You don't know a good holy damn thing about decency. Decency would be get rid of Hamas and let people live free. That would be decency. Put the people of Gaza on a path to be able to determine their own course, their own future. That's a worthwhile concept. Not a worthwhile concept. If you're unwilling to get rid of Hamas, they're surrendering. You know what you should be saying? Good. Let them all surrender so the bombing ends. But you don't say that because you don't care what happens to Israelis. You like it, don't you? Why don't you just be honest and admit it? Now, I don't know if she actually likes it. I'm only making an assumption on that one. I got to assume that she actually likes it. If she's going to excoriate the Biden administration for not pushing for ceasefire, right? She wants the ceasefire because she is okay with Hamas getting rearmed and ready to go. She's okay with Hamas getting stronger because that's the only reason to be okay with a ceasefire. That's it. Even Bernie Sanders knows you can't do it forever. I don't believe you can do it at all. And I think that's the rational course. But this commie, Ocasio-Cortez, thinks you can do it forever. Bernie has yet to figure out that his politics don't match up with his religion. Bernie, let me, let me help you, Achie. Just, uh, just uh, to, you know, one Jew to another. They hate you. You were a good, useful idiot up until October 7th. Now you're just some kind of uppity Jew in the way. 
These squad members hate you. They would rather see you gone. You don't know that? You haven't figured it out by now from Andre Carson and Rashida Tlaib? You haven't figured it out? Well, then you're a fool. You're a fool. You want to talk about not permanent ceasefires, that's fine. Say it to Representative Ocasio-Cortez. And don't say it in some kind of statement on CBS News. No, walk right into her office. At least recognize that they hate you. They'll use you, and they have used you. But they hate you. You haven't figured that out? Well, spend some time with it. Oh, by the way, uh, Jewish or not, understand that these squad members, they hate you. They show it all the time. When do you start believing them? I'm Tony Katz. Oh, don't get this cold going around, whatever you do. Do not get it. Don't get me wrong, I feel fine. I'm amazed I have a voice, but like I it's the coughing will not stop. It just won't stop. It has been days. This is dumb. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Dow right now up fifty eight. Nasdaq is down near thirty. Lot of talk about what Jerome Powell's gonna do. Jerome Powell does not care about what Wall Street wants at all. He has proven this. There's two different dynamics at play. What the market is telling you and what Federal Reserve Chairman Powell is telling you. That according to uh, the CIO of a uh, hedge fund. I think that's accurate. Doesn't care. I don't see any rate cuts coming anytime soon. What they're trying to figure out is, will there be rate cuts first quarter of 2024? I mean, they you you talk to them. There's real hope, real hope. They'll see a full percent down over the course of next year. I don't know about that. You've got the Federal Reserve meeting Wednesday, and then you've got the European Central Bank and the Bank of England and others getting together on Thursday. So, do you have contrary or contradicting messages, or do you have? Um, unanimity from from these groups that will send the markets uh, in in certain directions. Uh, I am only convinced that the people who are saying that there's going to be a, a a soft landing that's that's much more fantasy. That's much more fantasy than it is reality. The idea that it's all going to work out fine. I, 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 I'm, I am not there by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, I've got everything you need to know about these presidents and the, and the free speech conversation. Oh, who has quit? Who won't quit? Who's getting supported? Who isn't? I have got the whole thing going on. Alex Jones, back on Twitter, been asked about what I I think of it. And then, of course, 
as we take a look at this this bigotry that's been going on and how it affects Western culture, how about the idea that amongst Democrats, Holocaust denial is growing? If you think this is just about Jews, I can't say it enough. No, it's not. It's about so much. How about the denial of reality? I've got that story coming up. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. Look, the rate is slowing, but prices are still high. And so when you ask people, okay, the jobs market is strong, yes, they acknowledge that, but their income isn't keeping up with inflation. And that's that immediate pocketbook impact where you see such big numbers say that. Because prices are still not back at those pre-pandemic levels. Right. That's correct. Thank you so much for the honesty, CBS. We greatly appreciate it. Is your income keeping up with inflation? According to CBS News, 24% say yes which means 76% say no. That's that's where Americans feel it. And that explains a lot regarding Biden's poor polling numbers. I mean, the polling is so interesting because it if, if you look at the head-to-head matchups, Georgia and Michigan, uh, CNN had the polling. Trump beats Biden. And if that's not enough to make the Trump people say, we're going to... Everybody else step out of the way. We're going to win this thing. Stop being ridiculous. Well, one thing I know is that Chris Christie is not stepping out of the way. Ron DeSantis is not stepping out of the way. And Nikki Haley actually thinks she's going to win. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's going on? 833-468-8669-833. Got Tony. None of these people. You won't see anybody drop until after New Hampshire and possibly after South Carolina. But Trump has to win by numbers. I mean, if you show me a poll that shows him up plus 50, and he only wins by eight, someone might think they could stick around. Even though eight is a giant number. Because they'll say, oh, we don't believe the polls. If he doesn't win Iowa, well, then it's, you know, Katie bar the door in terms of who's going to, Stick around who has money to try and make it to some other places and try and create some opportunity for Super Tuesday. But that is not the that is not the story. The story right now is that the president of the University of Pennsylvania, Elizabeth McGill, has resigned. Because of her maddening statements, just like Claudine Gay of Harvard, just like Sally Kornbluth of MIT regarding questioning of whether or not calling for the genocide of Jews violated the rules or code of conduct. And uh, to a person, they said, well, it it depends on the the context. It's a context-dependent decision. That's what McGill said. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That's what... Elise Stefanik, representative from New York, responded with. 
The issue with the answer, of course, was that it was inhumane. You really think that you're allowed to have mobs of people screaming for, for dead Jews and this is, this is okay? At Harvard, you had to take a seminar where you learned that not using somebody's proper pronoun was a violent act. You had to take the class, the, 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 the thing. You had to do it. You didn't have an option. You didn't have a say. Wrong pronoun, that's violence. Chanting for genocide, super fine. Now, I think it's weird that you tell me it's violent if I call you he when I can see your Adam's apple. Uh, you're a he. That, that's all there is to it. I won't lie to myself for you because I think that's an act of violence. But this is, of course, taken part of, taken, uh, has been taken to be part of the free speech conversation. Because this is a question of should we really be curtailing speech on college campuses? The argument fails because the campuses have already been curtailing free speech. But the speech they've been curtailing is mine and yours. Riley Gaines, Ann Coulter, Ben Shapiro, name of the person who they politically disagree with, and they're totally fine with curtailing those rights. Yet somehow, on mobs saying, kill all the Jews, they are now like, well... So you see, it stops being a free speech conversation. Because there's something to be said for, should there be a a conversation allowed regarding the rights of Hamas? Could one have a conference called the rights of Hamas? Should they be allowed to exist? I actually think that that's something that can be done. Because bad ideas need to be put into the public sphere. They need to be put into the town square, the public square. So they could be discussed, and then people could see what a bad idea it is. Should Hamas be allowed to exist? A terrorist organization? Should the KKK be allowed to exist? People who want to eliminate black Americans? And what, what are we going to say? Well, no, it's just a, a group of misunderstood young men who are proud of their culture. Proud of their culture by wanting to get rid of every black and Jewish face. That's uh, that. That isn't some people who want to have you know a parade. There's there's something a, a wee bit different in that. But should you be allowed to address it? Of course, you should be allowed to discuss it, for sure. And I don't want to stop any university from having these open conversations. It's the universities that stop the ability to have open conversation. They've been doing it for years. And they've been doing it under the guise of what? Protection. Being inclusive. Being supportive of the student body. Right until the moment it was untenable to do so. 
because they don't actually care if the Jews are dead and the progressives that make up their their student bodies and their academic bodies really have an anti-Semitism problem. So now protecting Jews wasn't something they actually cared about. They weren't an important part of the student body. Now, you and I have known this because we have discussed this. And that's why I look at people on these college campuses. I'm like, how did you not know? And I have to remind myself, I need to show some grace because it's very possible that they did not know. And I could do one of two things. I could either scream at them for not knowing. Or I could try and be helpful to the fact that they didn't know. Now they know, let's talk about what we're going to do about it. Let's talk about how you're going to change how you vote, change how you think, change how you present, uh, or how you engage your friends, change who your friends are. Pretty important, if you ask me. Over at Cornell, I was discussing this uh, the, the, uh, the other day. Over the past few days, a number of universities, including Cornell, have been asked by members of Congress to make clear their policies around genocide. Check out what Cornell writes. Genocide is abhorrent, and Cornell condemns calls for the genocide of any people. An explicit call for genocide to kill all members of a group of people would be a violation of our policies. So as William Jacobson, Cornell law professor, finds it, you mean you're defining it so narrowly It has to be an explicit call to kill all members of a group. You have to literally walk around saying, we want to kill every Jew in existence. That's wrong. But from the river to the sea, which is a call to genocide, that's not actually a call to kill Jews. Okay. Phantasmal. Cornell, the same place that would have a problem if Riley Gaines was on their campus. Discussing honestly that men are not women and women are not men. Pick your black conservative. Oh, my gosh, you can't have them on the campus. They're a traitor. And the list goes on and on. One of the things that, that, that this has exposed is how absolutely intellectually dishonest the universities are. And it is intellectual dishonesty. More than 500 Harvard faculty members have signed a letter defending Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard University, and urging the university not to remove her. Now, Claudine Gay has got her own series of problems. The faculty members who are supporting her urge Harvard to, quote, defend the independence of the university and to resist political pressures that are at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom, including calls for the removal of President Claudine Gay. The critical work of defending a culture of free inquiry in our diverse community cannot proceed if we let its shape be dictated by outside forces. That's what they wrote. There was a study of 248 universities and and, uh, uh, a poll, or I should say, looking at the uh, systems that they have in place in terms of free speech and where they rank, and Harvard ranked 248th out of 248. The least amount of free speech is available on the Harvard campus. Number 247, University of Pennsylvania, where President uh, Elizabeth McGill and the chairman of the board, Scott Bach, have both resigned. Harvard doesn't believe in free speech at all. Check out the statement. 
the critical work of defending a culture of free inquiry in our diverse community. What the? Why is diversity always there? That's right. Because diversity is always the thing. The DEI nonsense is the thing. With Claudine Gay, this is actually a big deal because now there's a question of how she got the job. I don't know how she got the job. I have absolutely no idea. I stated that last week. Now that is being what's being discussed by Christopher Rufo and uh, Carol Swain, Dr. Swain, is that it's possible that Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, who doesn't really have a strong academic background at all of publishing and of written works of, of any kind, of really an, a strong academic record of any kind, that the academic work she has done, she was stealing from Carol Swain, Dr. Carol Swain, who's written a series of books, was a Democrat, now a Republican, and has written books on um, uh, the 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 roadblocks people put up uh, under the and utilizing the claims of racism. We're about to find out whether or not Claudine Gay, I mean, as is described now in these multiple places, was she the right woman for the job or was she a diversity hire? The presidents of all three of the Ivy Leagues, which is now called the ISIS Leagues, uh, ISIS League schools, they were the Ivy Leagues, but that's that's over now, are all women. It has some people wondering whether or not these are diversity hires. I have no idea. I don't know. I didn't know their records. I didn't know their, their, their CVs. How would I? It's not something I pay attention to. Now they're looking into Claudine Gay. Things look weird. But nothing beats Jamie Raskin, the Democrat from Maryland, progressive, who, when asked on MSNBC about these hearings and Elise Stefanik, goes into one of the ugliest statements out there. Uh, Jamie Raskin is Jewish. This is despicably ignorant from the congressman. Allow me to explain. Well, I'm thinking about it as a father, as a parent. I mean, if, my kids have been sent to college at great expense, uh, like uh, you know, millions of people across the country. I want to know that if somebody is actually calling for the genocide of the Jews or anybody else on campus, that we've got a college president who will say, quickly get campus police over there. That person could be a danger to other people around them, especially in the age of the AR-15, when we've had, you know, uh, genocidal-style uh, language being used, but also uh, massacres taking place, like at the Tree of Life uh, Synagogue um, in uh, Pittsburgh or at the Buffalo Supermarket. Those are right-wing anti-Semites who talk about the Great Replacement Theory. We- ah, it's the right-wing, you see, is the problem. You look how much he had to spin for that, but that's not the story. Wait for it. We had a guy at Cornell uh, who was making death threats towards Jews, and we had three Palestinian uh, college kids who were shot in Burlington, Vermont, of all places. So, you know, with lax Republican gun laws across the country, we've got to take very seriously anybody who's making 
any kind of violent threats, especially genocidal threats. Having said that, uh, where does Elise Stefanik get off lecturing anybody about anti-Semitism when she's the hugest supporter of Donald Trump, who traffics in anti-Semitism all the time? She didn't utter a peep of protest when he had Kanye West and Nick Fuentes over for dinner. Nick Fuentes, who doubts whether October 7th even took place because he thinks it was some kind of suspicious propaganda move by the Israelis. And the Republican Party is filled with people who are entangled with anti-Semitism like that. And yet somehow she gets on her high horse and lectures a Jewish college president from MIT. Being Jewish does not make you an expert in anti-Semitism, you incredible, disgusting bigot. Secondly, everybody should have said Trump was wrong for meeting with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. I said it. And number three, she was right to ask the question. The presidents are bigots. And you bringing up Trump is just your unwillingness, Aki, to deal with the situation in front of you. The Democratic Party is lousy with Jew haters. You're full of them. And you keep defending them. We call them the squad. They're right there down the, down the office from you. Right down the corridor. Why don't you just say something already? Who is Elise Stefanik to lecture? Not every Jewish person has an expertise in anti-Semitism. And when you've given up your religion for your liberalism, my gosh, we've seen what kind of horrible things come from that. Thank goodness Elise Stefanik said something. A despicable statement. But then again, they want these presidents to stay in power. I'm Tony Katz. Border week. I told you, I'm bringing every aspect of the border. Uh, Chief Clem, uh, former Yuma sector Border Patrol chief, going to be with us in the, in the next hour. Isabel Soto, it is Policy for Libre Initiative. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What is the real experience going on at the border? I mean, that's the, that's the question. Until we've got data, we don't know how we're supposed to go about doing things. What we know is anybody who's okay with status quo is okay with destruction. This doesn't work the way we have it. It hasn't worked for years. So we don't, it's only going to make changes. We're only going to make changes if we actually make them. We start with Chief Chris Clem. That's coming up right after this. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. As promised, it is border week here at Tony Katz today. Me, I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyCats.com and put this together with Americans for Prosperity, AmericansforProsperity.org. Of course, I went down to visit the border over the summer, and we've been talking about the issues and the challenges. So I got a chance to speak to Chris Clem, the former Border Patrol chief of the Yuma sector, who spent years building his way up the ranks to eventually being Border Patrol chief before retiring, really to get an understanding of not only the, the importance of the wall, but but how these problems at the border built themselves out. And so the first question that I asked him was, where along the line did this start becoming a problem? He worked for multiple administrations, including the Clinton administration, as a member of Border Patrol. When did this issue 
with the southern border, with the amount of people coming over, with our inability to be willing to defend it via policy or other uh, means, right? The actual physical uh, technology itself. When did this become the real issue that it is today? Well, let's uh, let's uh, break it down even further. If you go back to 1994, when they uh, they passed the crime bill, the crime bill that uh, uh, during a State of the Union address, uh, President Clinton at the time, you know, talked about putting 5,000 uh, uh, law enforcement on the streets, and that included border guards. That was his language, border guards, and it was based off of uh, then uh, a former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan's you know, a uh, big, uh, big push on immigration and illegal immigration and reform. And so um, I was hired under that. So that was the first push to say, hey, we need to get illegal immigration under control. And so it was it was people under Clinton. And I was hired under that. Um, we were coming off the heels of uh, Operation Gatekeeper and Hold the Line, where they built the first chain link fences along the border was the first real big step. Some old Vietnam era landing mat to control this this huge flow of people. And it was mainly at the time, early in my career, Mexican nationals coming, uh, coming looking for work and a lot of seasonal immigration that you could trace back for 50 years, people coming in based on seasons. As it progressed, uh, obviously we had the horrors of 9-11, which brought everybody together to say, hey, we've got to look at this even, even great, greater, like from immigration perspective, visa problems to border security. And uh, uh, George Bush uh, pushed a lot of infrastructure. Uh, it's where we began building a lot more hardened walls and barriers because back in the early 2000s, uh, we had a lot of people driving across the border. And so we put a lot of uh, Normandy style vehicle barriers up along the border to prevent that that mode of transportation into the United States. Um, and then under under Obama, uh, we built a lot of wall. Um, it was legacy policies and, and laws and appropriations under Bush, but Obama continued to do that. And let's let's go back in time to the beginning of uh, President Obama's second term in 2012. There was a big push for comprehensive immigration reform. And uh, so the, the, the left and the right said, OK, we'll give you that, but you got to give us border security. So if you meet the border security standards, then we will pass something uh, in, in, in regards to reform. And uh, so they did. And we built a lot of wall. And we removed a lot of people and we rounded up a lot of criminal aliens across the country um, and and things were going in the right direction. And then uh, politics got really involved and people argued over the definition of control. What was control of the border? What did that mean? And uh, and then President Obama, I think he's, that was an infamous cell phone and a pen uh, a conversation and uh, an executive fiat. And I was actually in Washington, D.C. as one of the leads for Customs and Border Protection to execute under President Obama's uh, 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 executive orders. And, and so, yeah, everybody was making progress. Then we kind of, then, then it got polit political. It got political at the latter part of, of the Obama administration. And, and as an agent, now I was up in Washington, D.C. So at the time, so you're in the mix of it. I mean, you can't ignore politics when you're in Washington. But the agents themselves and the agency didn't want to get involved in that. Then comes candidate Trump. And it was about building the wall. And um, and that was a campaign slogan, build the wall. And for us as agents, it was a wall system. It was a wall package. It was so much more than uh, a brick and mortar. It was technology. It was access roads. It was cameras. It was policies that would help us really secure that border because we started seeing that lag at the last few years of, of President Obama. While he was pushing it, then he kind of flatlined it. Um, 
Well, when uh, it became President Trump and we implemented all the the requirements that we had, things were things were going great. I mean, the numbers uh, of people that were coming in uh, had had dropped. Uh, we were having a great time as as an agency because we had the tools we needed to do our job. And I would say that it was a kind of the 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 climax of my career was that those few years under President Trump. Now, I, w- I will say this. Um, the policies were effective, but I like to say clunky, but effective. I mean, we we had to start stop a lot of times because things weren't ironed out yet. You know, uh, they were people were so quick to get out there and do something. Um, but uh, it made a difference when you had the infrastructure in place. You had the policy in place, you know, and, and the support coming from the White House to say, hey, we're we're knocking this down. We're tired of this. Um, boy, it was a great time to be a border patrol agent. Even, so even let's. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Let, let, let's, let's go back just for a minute before yeah. we start really digging on the concept of the wall itself. Mm-hmm. The idea that politics got involved. In yeah. your view, in the view of other Border, border Patrol agents that you uh, spoke with, what were the politics? Yeah, so it was, it was you know, uh, so the campaign, right, it really kind of got involved. Well, we'll start with, the, uh, with uh, President Obama uh, when as soon as they... Uh, that administration started kind of putting the migrants and giving a uh, migrant those that have been here illegally kind of a pass. Or, well, if they're if they're going to come over here and try to reunite with family, you need to to let them go, right? And it's like, wait a second, that's not what the law says. We have to prosecute them. We have to process them. There's things we have to do, and they kind of started meddling, if you will into the day-to-day operations because they wanted to control that narrative then comes along meddling the same as micromanaging yeah i would say that right because look you know it's a kind of a a known saying for any of the of the agencies that uh, are based out of dc is that three thousand mile screwdriver you know what what law says and what policy says is what we would operate under there in in the field but then all of a sudden they reached out with that screwdriver and said, no, 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 you're going to do it this way because, you know, the executive branch has that authority by, you know, by under the Constitution to to execute those things. Well, it would really frustrate us because we knew what was right and wrong. But then, wait, well, hold on a second. We're going to do it this way. Why? Why are we catching these people and releasing them? Why aren't we detaining them and letting them go through an adjudication process, which is better for everybody? Okay, so they may be detained for a few weeks or months, but they're going to get a decision, you know, and then if the decision is to let them stay, they can continue with the process. If the decision is they have to be removed, then they get removed and they get to the back of the line and try again. Um, So that's that began the latter part of the Obama administration. Then it became campaign candidate Trump. Right. And so he was building the wall. Right. That was his campaign. So now everything associated with candidate Trump wall became border patrol the world was open to a whole new like what is this agency that he's talking about not a lot of people really knew about the border patrol and what we did unless you were along the border and uh and so that was kind of a a big thing for us it put us in the limelight um we had kind of been just taking care of business you know we're we're a, a different breed of federal agents you know we just like to go out there and do our job we ride horses for a living sometimes you know um you know, then, of course, some of us like me, you know, we're in the office more times than we were in the field. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was it became political. Then it became the 
think about the first few years of the Trump administration. Uh, he, once he lost control of the his party, no longer had the House. They were going after him. Everything that he was doing, you know, right. and became a big thing. Right. And look, I can tell you this. I was the deputy chief of El Paso uh, during the Trump administration, uh, the, midway through the administration. And uh, and and El Paso was pretty much ground zero for the border crisis that began uh, in 19. I couldn't turn around without tripping over a Democratic congressional delegation coming down to figure out what was going on. I mean, it was it was one or once or twice a week. Like there was dozens of members of Congress wanting to ask every question, turn over every stone to see what was going on. Um, and and that impacts the business flow of the operations for the Border Patrol when agents have to, you know, watch what they're doing because Congress is coming to look and taking pictures. And, you know, it just became so political. It's like, look, look we just want to do our job. We want to well, do. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. One of the things uh, talking to uh, former Border Patrol chief uh, Chris Clem, uh, Yuma sector. One of the things that became political right away is the concept of the wall. Never mind the whole Mexico is going yeah. to pay for it. Yeah. But the idea of a wall, we were told you can climb over it, you can dig under it, you can cut through it. Uh, the question for America is, do walls work? And so as a man who has experienced it, saw the construction of it, dealt with it in different sectors, Yuma sector being much different than Rio Grande Valley or El Paso, do walls work? And if so, how? Yes, so walls do work when they're, uh, uh, you know, uh, when we put them where we need them, right? Um, there hasn't been an agent uh, that I'm, I've ever met that says, hey, we need a 2,000-mile wall from the Gulf Coast to the Pacific Ocean. We need it where it makes sense. And, and allow me to, uh, to kind of break this down a little bit. The wall, as it's designed based on our requirements, is to deny or impede access into the United States or control and contain access into the United States. There are places where it's right there on the border and there's places where we have to kind of concede based on river boundaries and things like that. And it's very, very important when we have urban areas along the border, San Diego, El Paso, places in Arizona, where we have determined that the vanishing point for somebody that enters illegally is seconds to minutes. You've ever been to a border town, El Paso, San Diego area, those are great examples where they can jump the fence, cross the river, and be in a neighborhood or a high school or an apartment complex in seconds. So that's where you need that wall to slow them down. And when you combine that wall with technology in the form of cameras and sensors to help agents do their job, that's where it really makes sense. So where we have put wall in those areas where we have a, a, a very short vanishing time, it has made a huge difference. It has given us the tactical advantage to do our job, and it's made areas safer. I mean, you can't refute it when you look at crime results in, in like El Paso, uh, Texas. It's one of the most safest cities in America. A lot of it has to do with what we've done at the border. Um, so people, yeah. really, when we talk about the wall and as you're discussing it, it isn't about stopping people because they're already in the United States in a lot of these places, especially when you talk about Rio Grande Valley. I've been in McAllen. The wall is is a mile, a mile and a half inland, and you get you get completely freaked out when the first time you see yeah. that, and you yeah. realize it's not on the border, but you look at the winding nature of the Rio Grande. There's a moment where you could be in Texas, but south of Mexico. Right. That's right. the level of winding yes. of, of that sector. But the objective here is to slow people down to apprehensions. That is not something that gets discussed publicly. Why has there been no uh, real push to explain why that is so valuable to people like yourself and those in Border Patrol? 
Well, I think oftentimes it becomes uh, it, it can be a very emotional and divisive issue um, that can get, uh, you know, captured by uh, uh, political uh, uh, politicians and or uh, certain uh, media outlets. Right. They want to stoke that fire. And so if you tell the truth and say this is why it's designed, it's there to give us a tactical advantage to help us slow down. So we have a better chance of making an arrest to prevent bad people and bad things from coming in. You know, that then that makes sense. Right. But if you if you just say, you know, this this kind of this false choice of, you know, you either have a wall, or you don't have a wall, they're either going to get over there or it's either going to work or not work. Well, look, it's a combination of things. You know, um, the wall slows them down when you have the, the people in place and the technology in place, then you can make those arrests. And, and look, if you if you've been to those areas of the border where you've seen this 30 foot wall with uh, the last six feet having this anti climb, look. It's very few people that can physically get over there without assistance. And so when you have the camera and the sensor look in there and you see somebody trying to make that um, that uh, attempted illegal entry, you can respond and you can make the result. But without that wall, they're, they're going to go and they're going to vanish and they're going to be those gotaways, which we've known we've had a million and a half gotaways in the last three years. So we need to continue to push. The only way we're going to get a better chance at securing this border is to continue what we started yeah, you know, we can we can smooth it out a little bit and make some some adjustments, but we need to finish that infrastructure packet that we pack, uh, packet that we began a few years ago. And um and when you have you know a secure border, then it makes sense to expand lawful legal pathways for people to come in the right way because they know the wrong way you're going to you're not going to be able to make it as easy. I know? think I think it's interesting that you you ranked them. I I do this often. Um, you have to get this done before you can get to the to the next thing. Is that a position of you personally, Chief Clem, or is that a position of, of, of Border Patrol that once you do this, then you can get the other things going, but you got to start here. And I think that's where Americans are in, in yeah. great measure. You got to start with securing the border. Yeah, well, so that's my opinion. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, I'm a border security expert, not an immigration expert. I mean, there, there are two different things in my book and in, in the Border Patrol's book. We, we're, we have immigration authority. We have to process immigration cases, but our job is to secure the border. I, I you know, what happens to somebody after we are done uh, adjudicating our piece, whether they're released, processed, turned over, removed, that's, that's outside of, that's immigration. My job is to catch anything and everything that comes in between the ports of entry, or at least my job was, but yes, uh, border patrol agents are going to say, Hey, let's secure that border first. Because you can go back to, to historical programs where you added an easier, more efficient way to bring people in. You'll see a, a correlation to a decline in illegal entries because people sometimes just want to come here and work. You can go back to the 50s and 60s on the Bracero program and do that. But back to your point. Yes, as Border Patrol agent, and, and in my opinion, we have to start with a secure border. I mean, that's that's it's a foundation, just like when you're building a home. You have to get the foundation right or everything else will crumble. And we've experienced that over the last few years, actually the last several decades, because we will, the government's great at building band-aids. Hey, we'll do this, we'll do that, but get that foundation, right? Secure that border. And I think that opens up, it takes that piece off the table. So then maybe some of our common sense folks can go, Hey, what, what does business need? What do the communities need? What do we need to continue healthy, lawful immigration to continue to make America prosperous and grow? But if you don't have that foundation of a secure border and that's things are going to crumble because we can we can do all the things we want 
uh, you know, militarily, everything around the world. However, there's always going to be threats. So we've got to get that secure. Last thing I'll say on that point, Tony, is look, everywhere around this country, you have people that live in gated communities. You have locks on your front door. You have locks in your bedroom. If you're fortunate to have a bathroom in your bedroom, you got a lock on that door. But we will argue and we will become divisive and we will name call and finger point if we want to put a lock on our front door and just say, hey, come in the right way. Just come in the right way. Don't come in illegally. That keeps us secure. We just want to know who you are. Don't come in illegally. We will we will make that such a divisive issue. And I like to call it tall fences and wide gates. We need to have a country of tall fences, which is our border security, and then wide gates, which would be the lawful pathways for people to come in the right way. So we know who they are and what your intentions are. And and that's the way we should be looking at it. And that's my opinion. But that's kind of where I see the success going if, if we can get there. Chris Clem, former Border Patrol chief of the Yuma sector, just more of the part of Border Week that we're doing all week. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz Today. By now, I assume you've all heard about the Ramaswamy leak. Oh, big news. Big, big news. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. The Ramaswamy leak. Because uh, presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, he was on a, a live stream uh, yesterday with Elon Musk and uh, Alex Jones, whole host of, of, of people doing this live stream, the spaces on, on X. And the next thing you know, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had to use the restroom. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I, I didn't maybe I didn't explain properly what kind of leak. Ramaswamy uses the bathroom and doesn't hit mute on his phone. And there were 100,000 people who were all part of this call, all part of this conversation. And um, they all heard it. Now, I think maybe the bigger story here is Alex Jones and Elon Musk and Ramaswamy's there. And what the heck is happening? That one, that one I think I got to dig into. I got to take some time with that. But, uh... Yeah, that that happened. As uh, as they said, brings a whole new meaning to live stream. The jokes write themselves, people. I'm not responsible. Ugh. All I know is uh, Ramaswamy ended up being all wet. Wait, am I done? Am I out? Am I clean? Am I? Th- all right, everybody, go wash their hands. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Not a good weekend for sports in the great state of Indiana. The Pacers do not come home with the cup going down to the Lakers. Uh, the Colts had a chance to do everything right and chose not to play football against the Bengals. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Jam V joins us for 93.5107.5. The fan, he is the voice of sports in Indiana. Before we get to the Colts. The Sunday nearly night game, the Chiefs and the Bills, where the Chiefs lose once again. I mean, it's it's starting to get silly over there for the Kansas City Chiefs. But they lose on a penalty because Holmes has got the pass. The pass goes to Travis Kelsey. Kelsey 
seeing that it was do or die time, they score or they lose with the lateral to Kadarius Tony. He runs it into the end zone, but wait, a flag, and Tony is offsides. Patrick Mahomes goes out of his mind. He goes bat crap bananas crazy and then says, you know, the officials, uh, they decided this game. They didn't leave it to the players. Uh, talk to me about whether Tony was out offsides. Uh, he was. And then um, this Mahomes reaction, is this a message to his team or is this a guy who just for a moment lost his head? No, it's a uh, frustration for him. Frustration for both he and Andy Reid, their head coach, too, more than anything else because all you have to do is you know, anybody can look at, you know, where he lined up and he lined up offsides and, oh, that's the call right there that you make when they line up offsides. So, this was built more out of frustration, out of them not being the team that you would expect them to be at this point. Now, you still have plenty of time to turn this thing around and to be more dominant or the dominant team that you thought. But, you know, it, it, I think it's also this, Tony. I think it's one of those, you know, it was a visionary play call, as you talked about. You accurately described it. You know, probably the play of the year, if that thing stands for, for a potential game-winning touchdown, I think you lump all that together and the fact that this has been a frustrating season for them not being as good overall is what they thought they were going to be just kind of boiled over with him and you got that reaction. And then his head coach backed him up with that reaction as well. Plus, um, listen, they, they struggled. They struggled a couple of different times in the Colts game too. And we talked about it all the time with the NFL officiating. But, I mean, it's, it's open season on that right now. And I just thought Patrick Mahomes took that opportunity to be that level of frustrated and have it boil over to, uh, to call his shots against the officials in what has been a frustrating season for him to this point, even though they're still among the better teams in the AFC. Let's bring it now to the Colts. Losing to the Bengals, 34-14. The Colts are 7-6. and six. The Colts have beaten their wins from last season. The Colts are a better team and have done better than anybody anticipated. And still, they're the most frustrating team out there. Colts fans not happy. Gardner Minshew, 26 of 39, 240 yards, one touchdown, one interception, no running game whatsoever. What the hell has happened to this offense? Like that up and down roller coaster ride we talked about last week. And we talked about it last week in terms of Tennessee, Tony, of it being good of it being solid, of it being exciting because the way that they want it, that is just this season in general. They're not that good. They can be better than average, but not much better than that. What they cannot do, they cannot outlast a couple of different things here, Tony. They can't outlast making mistakes. We've talked about that. We've normally talked about that in terms of the quarterback, Gardner Menchu, but yesterday, you know, it was penalties, whether right or wrong, and you know, what was good in special teams was horrible in special teams yesterday, you know, considering the mistakes and you know, Matt Gay and misses. And then what you do is factor in that the Cincinnati team is probably the best team they played in a while, even without Joe Burrow. They still have the best skill position players of any team the Colts have played all season long. So it was going to be tough. And that's what I talked about last week. You and I talked about this. I would have rather have seen the Bengals lose last Monday night in Jacksonville than win. And everybody around here got excited. Oh, we're going to track down Jacksonville. This is going to be great. Jacksonville already owns hugely the tiebreaker over you. 
Um, and that was a, that's that was going to stand no matter what happens to Jacksonville. It's going to take a lot to get over them. But you got to worry about these other teams here. You got to worry about this Bengals team who now head to head owns the tie break over you. Thus, you're going to have the biggest game of the season. I mean, this is I talk about must wins all the time, but people make fun of me. This is as must win if you want to make the postseason as a must win can be against the Steelers on Saturday because yesterday in all phases the Colts simply didn't show up. That's that's an understatement. And it's weird because when when you uh when you take a look, when you take a look at how they have played in in, in some previous games, the, the some of the special teams play has been unbelievable. Some of the defensive play has been unbelievable. Yeah. The Jets deep I'm not the Jets. See, they, that's that's how bad they made me think of the Jets. <laughs> the Colts yeah. defense got picked apart by the Bengals backup quarterback. And Jake Browning is not a nothing. That guy can throw. They got picked apart, fleeced JMV. That's the best way to describe it. You know, you watched on Monday night too. The Bengals do the same thing, throw a lot of screen passes, use that screen game. And what was so maddening for Colts fans, and I'm sure everybody watching that cared about this game here at Indy, was the simple fact that that screen game over and over and over killed them to the point where I don't know what Gus Bradley was doing. I don't know if he feels he didn't have any answer and he just kind of maintained. But they just offensively let Cincinnati and Jake Browning just go that screen game all the way down the field to the point to where it killed them. Now, granted, when you look at the stats alone, you look at Higgins, you look at Chase, you look at Boyd, there was nothing overwhelming about that. You look at their stats, you're probably going to say, hey, the Colts have a really good chance to win. But it was the screen game. And, Tony, I'll give you a great point here. At the end of the half, we all thought that turn of events, the pick six, um, and then all that entailed them tying that up going into the half, you thought, wow, you're going to come out in the third quarter and the Colts are going to put the hammer down. But the Bengals went right back to that screen game. And if you remember, at the end of the half, Jake Browning looked shook. He looked shook. And you wondered how he was going to be in the second half. But they let him get comfortable again. And that is, I think, what people question regarding Gus Bradley and this defense. He so oftentimes, it seems like this defense lets teams get comfortable. In this case, you had a backup quarterback. You had no pressure. This team has been really good, the Colts putting pressure on the quarterback this season. It was non-existent yesterday, and they let a backup guy get comfortable and then kind of get get a little bit out of sorts and then reestablish that level of comfort, and they didn't have a chance. I mean, really, they didn't have a chance all day long, but the defensive approach was baffling at best. Well, you're, you're kind. Baffling I'm at kind. best is, is <laughs> kind. Remember, that if you want to say he looked shook going into the half, well, they, yeah. they got the ball coming out of the half and went immediately down, did the Bengals for a touchdown. Yeah, they did. Yeah, and that's, that's just the thing. You, you, all right, you, you saw what they were doing well. And again, screen after screen after screen. And for the Colts not to step up and stop it, I, I mean, it's just it, it's inexcusable. Absolutely inexcusable. I, I don't know if they'd have won anyway, but I mean, you look at the second half, you get yourself off to a good established start. And you give yourself a chance, but what they did, they let Jake Browning get comfortable. This offense get comfortable in Cincinnati. And now you have to deal with Cincinnati, who owned the tiebreaker. Cleveland owns the tiebreaker. That's why you got to beat Pittsburgh on Saturday. I mean, you got all these teams around you that own this tiebreaker, the AFC. You lose this game, and you're going to be crying for help to make the postseason. 
Talking to JMV, he is the voice of sports in Indiana, 93.5-1075, the fan out of Indianapolis. Take a look at Zach Moss's production. 13 carries, 28 yards. What's going on? He can't run it. <laughs> he can't He can't run it. You see, yeah, no, no, not. that's not going to work. Yeah. He, not, you, no, you went from a guy yeah. who can run it, you bring back Jonathan Taylor, and now he's a guy who can't run it? Sorry, it yeah. doesn't make sense. I know, I know. Well, I don't know if it's a combination of offensive line not doing the work, or just Moss, or or teams this deep, Tony, in the season defensively figuring it out. You go back, and I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but a lot, a lot of the work, the solid work that we saw Moss get off to, when you know the first four weeks of the season when when John Taylor was still out, that work was done with. Anthony Richardson. So I, I was thinking yesterday, you know, maybe this has to do with, you know, Moss being an effective more, you know, playing and thriving more when Richardson was out there than he is with Minshew. I, I don't know if that's a major factor, but at least I got to thinking about that yesterday. But this, again, details how important Jonathan Taylor is to this team. And they squeezed by the Titans last week, again, without a running game, and just simply could not do that yesterday. So we asked the question going into this week whether or not Jonathan Taylor, in a short week of work, they play on Saturday, but whether or not he is going to you know, be able to play coming back from that thumb situation or if he's going to miss again because this is a vital time to have your biggest playmaker be sitting on the bench coming back from an injury. And it's unfortunate because, yes, I would trust the running game would be much better if I'm out there and for the past two weeks has been simply non-existent. Is there any thought in your head as this team looks towards the rest of the season a desire to well if we can be in the playoff hunt we might as well try no one's talking about replacing Minshew are they and it's not that he had an awful game it's just there was no scoring in this game has anyone discussed it nah nah they're gonna go with him Saka's gonna go with him and you're right I mean teams defensively they can take away as much as they can a guy like Zach Moss because they're also not scared of Menchu and this offense going down the field on him. We talked about this, you know, basically the entire season without Anthony Richardson. There is not at all um, any worry, any doubt about what you're doing when you're facing this Colts offense about going down the field. And that's something you'd hoped you got. And honestly, Tony, you got it a couple of different times in that Tennessee game. And you can see that it does open up things for you. Even if they didn't run the football well, it just makes you a threat. And more often than not, defensively, you don't have to worry too much about the Colts being that threat. But, you know, in terms of replacing Gardner Minshew, I think the only way that's going to happen is if he gets injured. Kind of wondered yesterday, he was a little bit wobbly after one of those hits, and and you kind of thought, I wonder if he's going to go out and get checked up. He didn't, and he's going to be the guy come hell or high water for Shane Steichen. Let's take it off of the Colts and let's move it on over to the NBA. You've got the in-season tournament. Everybody heads over to Vegas only to have the Lakers beat the Pacers because the Pacers have no defense whatsoever. Am am I supposed to just be impressed that the Pacers made it uh, to uh, this this cup uh, opportunity? Or should I be looking at the Pacers saying this is exactly what we're talking about? You guys are exciting as hell, but you need all the pieces. No, we're going to find out if this is exactly what you're talking about. I thought the Lakers were just better. And and Anthony Davis was good. You know, Miles Turner didn't show. 
Buddy Heald didn't show. Their veteran guys, Bruce Brown, had a no-show as well. You can't have that and compete an entire game with the Lakers like that. Now, it's funny. I don't take whatsoever normally moral victories out of this, but this tournament still, Tony, it benefited the Pacers more than it benefited anybody. They had that celebration for the Lakers and the confetti and all that crap in Vegas after the win on Saturday night, but it still was more beneficial for the Pacers. They needed that. But I can tell you right here what will take that away, what will wash out absolutely everything if they go to Detroit tonight and look like garbage and that same old kind of let down baloney because this is not one of these prime time games where everybody's watching. If they revert back to being a team, Tony, for example, we saw against Chicago here in Indy, you know, Charlotte here in Indy, that Blazer game here in Indy, if you go back to that, then that's where I'm going to be angry. I'm not angry about Saturday night. I want these guys to show up and at least compete down the stretch, and they didn't, and that's unfortunate. It's too bad. But the experience overall was still incredibly beneficial. You erase all of that if you jack around and you go to Detroit and a team I believe has lost 18 or 19 consecutive games. They haven't won since October. Yeah. They haven't won since October. So if you go up there and lose that tonight or play down to that, then you're going to look like a phony. And by the way, they have to go on the road to Milwaukee on Wednesday. And you don't think Milwaukee's going to think about what took place on Thursday night and all that that entailed uh, with that game out in Vegas in that semifinal. That'd be one game I'm assuming they probably already have highlighted right there. So tonight, you just don't want to see the Pacers go back. We, we have to hold them to a higher standard now, a higher level of expectations. And, and this is exactly why. JMV, exactly why I asked the question last week about have they put too much into winning the tournament and therefore they'll maybe they'll be too much coming down from that. you got to be able to grind out a season because it's the playoffs that matter, not this in-season stuff. Yeah, and don't be phony. You know what I mean? If you're a team, if you're these guys, don't be phony. You're absolutely right. And there is a difference. And I know it's a long season, and I know on a Monday night and, you know, the clown show that's Detroit in general, that's probably not a great place where you want to show up, but it's your job. And if you truly are different, if you truly believe yourself to be among the better teams in the East, this is a part of the resume. This is the part of the schedule that you show it. I mean, anybody can get up for Boston. Anybody can get up for Milwaukee. Anybody can get up for the Lakers. But can you get up for this team that's awful and it's just begging you to beat them and then get the heck out of Dodge? So if you play down to that level, then you're going to prove to a lot of people around here the unfortunate status is up until this point, you still lack the maturity or you're a phony, make-believe type of team. And that's be unfortunate because they built – they built a lot, and I mean a lot of confidence in this Pacer fan over the past week. And so and that's why I thought that you look back at that tournament and, you know, even the losing at the Lakers on Saturday, I mean, that's something you could play off of. But not if you go into Detroit and just revert back to some of the stuff we've been disappointed in so far this year. JMV, the voice of sports in Indiana, 93.5, 107.5, the fan out of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. As we've stated many times, when you have a market like this, when you have an economy like this, there are groups and there are people who will do everything they can to take advantage of it. 
and take advantage of opportunities. In this case, Macy's getting a $5.8 billion buyout offer. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. It values the shares at $21 a share compared to uh, what was, you know, close, which is just over 17. Macy's been having sales issues, but they have said while they're looking not at traditional malls anymore, they're looking at other spots to open stores. Like, like they have, and they have not ruled out their own growth, not by any stretch. I have no idea what they're going to do or where the where the deal's going to go. I just think it interesting that even though things are down, people still see opportunity, which is a pretty important skill to have. This is Tony Katz today. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The border remains the most important subject in America, and that's why we're doing Border Week. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, great to be with you. Border Week presented by Americans for Prosperity, they sponsor my videos. And I wanted to put this together with them because it's a conversation of the economic impact of the border, what we're doing and what we're not doing, the jobs that are going unfulfilled. What are we doing right and what are we doing wrong policy-wise? Isabel Soto joins me. She is the policy director of the Libre Initiative. And I I spoke with her. You catch all the videos over at TonyCats.com. I spoke with her about policy that we have in place at the border. Is there anything that the United States is doing right. There's nothing like, if I can say today, here's one thing that they are doing on the border that's working. Other than the hard work that the that the Border Patrol agents have to do every single day, there's not one specific policy that I see that has been absolutely effective uh, by far and away. Is there anything that you would say is partially effective? Mm. Yeah, I think trying to reduce um, individuals coming to the border uh, and kind of waiting there to get processed. There are these other centers that have uh, started to get open in other countries. That's a promising idea. So that, again, it, it remains to be seen if that's actually going to work, but it's something more or less bipartisan. So that is a, that's an exciting thing that's in the works. So when we talk about that, you mean things that, as we say in the vernacular, remain in Mexico, like those kinds of, of policies? It's a little less that it's a little bit more t- on the technical side. So when people come, they can use like the CBP-1 app is a good example of basically individuals that are planning to come and seek asylum. So these are for, for asylum seekers specifically, and they can apply for asylum in another country and stay there while their application is being processed instead of what the status quo is, is people come, they cross and immediately claim asylum. And then so they that, in the U.S. That app was put forth by the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think it was the Wall Street Journal. I forget where. Uh, people, by and large, didn't use it because it seems that what they would rather do is come to the border and take their chances or come to the border and see if they'll get caught at all. Right. And not to mention, I mean, there were immense technical problems with the app, right? And you're assuming that it's it's easy to be able to use it. It's it, you're always going to have reception, and and it's going to be a seamless process, and that's just not the case. So it it is responding to a number of different incentives, and what you've mentioned of, of people taking their chances. The reality is the the individuals that try to cross the border, the only information that they reliably get is from bad actors. So the cartels who are profiting off of this whole broken system, those are the only people that are constantly in touch 
within what some ways they view as, as their customer base. And so it's really hard to be pushing against the messaging um, when the messaging is saying, go, go, go and cross the border. So their customers, which is a whole, there's a coyote conversation. Not there. to put it lightly. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I know, and it is, it is. I think we're, neither one of us is trying to downplay the horror that a lot of people go through yeah. in trying to get uh, to the country, which is a different conversation than whether or not they should be allowed in the country, which right. is a part of the policy problem that we see. Is, is, it, is it the United States giving a mixed message of, yeah, we're open, no, we're not? Or is it much more of the cartel-related side, as you've been able to study it, about uh, it, it doesn't matter what they say, we'll get you through, just give us the money, give us the money, give us the money. Yeah, well, it's both. I mean, if you have weak messaging from the United States government, that is perfect for the cartels to be able to exploit. Um, when you have an administration that is wishy-washy on the border, and for a very long time, which I think has, has changed slightly, but for a very long time, the Biden administration was saying, the border is secure and everything's fine. We don't need to worry about it. The cartels can say, yeah, see, everything's fine. They're not worried about it. They're not sending anyone to the border. They aren't increasing uh, border patrol agents. Feel free to come by. There was a mixed messaging that occurred when Title 42 ended uh, from the cartel side that the border would be completely open for 48 hours. Again, just completely false. And the Biden administration was not doing a good job getting out in front of this and at least trying to dissuade people from coming. Talk to Isabel Soto. She is the policy director for the Libre uh, Initiative. They focus on economic uh, liberty, immigration issues. Uh, the, the Biden administration not getting ahead of things. I, I could and you could probably go on for a long time about mm -hmm. Biden administration issues and where the political differences lie. But this is both parties uh, failing uh, on the border. Uh, and the, the question is, what policies are they putting forth that don't seem to get either side to come together? Or is it both sides that don't actually put forward policies that provide any value at all? Yeah. So I think part of it is that there's this there's this horrible and twisted incentive to put up these massive pieces of legislation. And this is both parties put up massive pieces of legislation, be it like border security on the right like huge and sticking stuff in there that we know does not have bipartisan consensus and will never get passed. But I could go home to my constituents and say, look, I'm trying to do things about the border. And then on the other side, we can have a massive bill uh, from the left, from the Democrats, that have a bunch of asylum things in there, a bunch of uh, legal immigration, and then pushing, pushing more to the point that it's not bipartisan and no one on the right will vote for it. But you can go back home to your district and say, I'm trying to get stuff done. But, you know, these Republicans or these Democrats won't let us get things done. So there's this weird situation where there's not a huge incentive to actually fix this problem. It's easier to talk about it and to complain about it. When you discuss with people uh, the problem, how do you describe it? In a word, complicated. Um, I think it is a, a it's important to make the distinction. The first thing I typically do is say, figure out if we're talking about uh, the border or we're talking about legal channels. So if we're talking about the border, I think the big distinction to make there is that, yes, it's a huge like uh, national security issue. It's also a humanitarian issue. So there are two avenues with which you discuss that. So it's, it's extremely complicated. And what I don't want to do is pretend like only addressing the border is the way to move forward. We can't ignore 
the legal pathways and vice versa. Some individuals only want to focus on those legal pathways and think everything else will be fixed if you fix that process. But the reality is you have to do both at the same time. That is the best way to tackle this. When I talk to people about this and talk about the humanitarian issues, uh, and I've said this before on radio, what about the humanitarian issues that the border causes right here in the United States? What about what it causes for those who live on the border, live on, on those ranches? What does it cause for towns like El Paso? What does it cause for towns uh, like, like McAllen that are dealing with this massive influx and simply can't handle it, never mind other things that, co- that come with that, which is a crime problem, which is a, a dollars and cents problem. And there's also uh, a, a, you know, a, I, I don't want to say a disease problem, but an illness issue. There are things that other nations have that we haven't dealt with in a great long time because we have a better sanitation conversation. We have a better healthcare uh, a conversation. How do you address the people who discuss, well, what about the humanitarian situation for the United States? Yeah. And it's it's a humanitarian, it's well put. It's humanitarian, not just for the individuals coming in, but the people that already live there, right? We're talking about, we're talking about the, the border that's shared with Texas. What a lot of people, a lot of people don't know is that that border, the majority of it is actually privately owned land. These are like individuals, actual homes and businesses that migrants are crossing into. And then on top of that, we have the scarcity issue. Um, some of these small towns, they don't have the resources or they have just enough resources to be able to address the day to day. They're used to addressing, you know, the number of people that typically come to their hospital every year, the number of staff that they'll need. When you have a thousand people cross, uh, all of a sudden it becomes a group of people that likely don't need medical care pretty urgently. We don't want to necessarily, you know, diminish that, but resources are scarce and that's the reality. And ultimately it, it, it hurts not just the migrants, but like you said, it hurts the whole community because no one is getting what they need. Uh, and the resources are dwindling and it, it's becoming harder and harder to be able to sustain that. So we have a, a problem in terms of the humanitarian on, on every side. Mm-hmm. We have a problem in terms of the economics. We have a problem in terms of policies. So when you say complicated, these are just some of the things that you are <laughs> referring to. Touch, yeah. Right. In, in the complicated issue. So when you're addressing this, whether it be members uh, on the Hill, Capitol Hill, or, or with people uh, across the country, what does Libre put forth as, all right, here, here's our top three policies. We think these three things have implemented or one thing have implemented would make things better and maybe define better. Yeah. Okay. Define better. I'll do that at some point. I think in terms of what can make things better, I think it's keep it simple. We need to stop going after these pie in the sky bills. So there are things that we support, um, like addressing certain geographic barriers. So there's a uh, Carrizo Cane which is an extremely big challenge at the border for border patrol agents to deal with. It's this giant plant. It gets in the way. It makes it harder for people to do their jobs. Easy. Deal with that. The other thing is- It's a, wait, border- it's, it's, it's a plant? It's a plant. Carrizo cane. It's giant and it gets in the way and it keeps people from doing their job. So this- you're talking about basically bulldozing it over, ripping it out of, by the root. Yep. yep. And it's, why, it's can't, why can't we do this? Because there isn't a standalone bill. This is something that a lot of uh, people on the right and left agree with. This is huge. It's a problem. But what we're doing it doing is packaging that tiny little fix into massive hundreds and hundreds of pages of legislation. And you can imagine if you have, you know, even 200 pages of legislation and one of those pages is about this, this plant, there are going to be other things in there that no one's going to like or only one party's going to like. 
So I think and keep we, it simple. So standalone bills, and we start with just moving this plant out of the way, and that is going to help Border Patrol e- more easily access people who are crossing. Yes. So I think it's it's that's okay. not you know the end all be all, but that is one example. There are so many things improving technology at ports of entry, improving technology along the border in general. There is, uh, a bill is there out an there. example of the type of technology? So cameras, for example, there's so many outdated pieces of tech that we don't even have parts for anymore to be able to replace an update. Um, Border Patrol is now using drones, ensuring that they have all the capabilities that they need to be able to monitor. And and by the way, it's not just Border Patrol, the cartels are making use of drones. Um, So we need to be able to not just like keep up with the cartel, but, you know, be four, five, six steps ahead of them. So that's, that's one of the main things is making sure that we have an actual border that can anticipate and not just react. Talking to Isabel uh, Soto, she is the policy director for the Libre uh, Initiative. So we, we, you just brought up two standalone pieces of legislation. Are you telling me there's not a member of Congress that will uh, author that and submit that and, and put that bill forward? We've got one uh, Intel bill at the border, which is all about updating some of this, legis- uh, some of this technology. And it's uh, also focused, there are a handful of things coming out right now um, that are some of these smart fixes. We've got something else about uh, updating like border patrol, making sure that there's better screening. I mean, if, if we really want to go down a rabbit hole, we can talk about the whole fentanyl issue. I mean, that that has been what is hurting. Fentanyl America doesn't seem like a rabbit hole to people. Fentanyl no, scares is, the living crap out of people. It is, it is the issue that I think is one of the most important things Americans should be rallying around, but it keeps you know, it's having its moments and then it goes away. But the actual problem doesn't go away. It's just the news cycle keeps forgetting about it. So what is the standalone bill, standalone concept that would help with the fentanyl coming in, in into the U.S.? Yeah. So essentially, there's there's a bill that, that's out there. I believe it's uh, Representative Slotkin that has uh, introduced it that would create just it's it's very it's a small fix, but it's something in the right direction. It creates a new position that increases capacity to be able to check what's coming in and out from ports of entry. Because that's where all the fentanyl, the majority of the fentanyl is coming in. It's actually through legal ports of entry. It's entering, you know, hidden in trucks, hidden in, you know, radios, hidden in in God knows what, but that's how it's getting in. Um, And that's how the supply is getting into the U.S. Representative Slotkin being uh, from Michigan, correct? Yes. So a Democrat. So you have people on, on the Democratic side of the aisle who are pushing forth some levels of legislation that could provide valuable. And you have people like uh, Representative Gonzalez, or sorry, apologies, not Gonzalez, Representative Duarte, who uh, are interested in, in being part of these, these pieces of legislation. The Intel Act, like I mentioned, I know he's involved in that as well. Um, but these are things that have just recently been, been introduced. So we'll see how much traction these things gain, uh, especially just given, you know, the next two years we're going to be dealing with a lot of a lot of issues um, fiscally, which I won't get into right now. Uh, but yeah, immigration is going to continue to be a large part of, I think, the, just the political atmosphere and, and take up a lot of time, as it should. And you've got an election coming up, which of course comes up all works. Of course. Do you do you find that there are people? Uh, representatives, senators, however, you know, members of, of the political sphere mm-hmm. who who have no interest in fixing the border because the issue is of more value than the fix. 
unfortunately, I think, yeah, that's that's true. It's it's easier to talk about a broken border than have a situation where you have a fixed one and the process works. You get much more political capital from pointing at your opponents and telling them that what they've done is, you know, this horrible thing to the country and they aren't acting on it. That's a huge bargaining chip. It's a huge thing, especially in an election. How, how, do you, does, does Libre address that with, with, with members of Congress? Does it, does it bring this up at all or, or is that kind of out of their, out of their sphere? Oh, we, we talk to whoever we need to talk to to get things done. So we will work with anyone who has a good idea. Uh, to, to that end, uh, you brought up in the beginning uh, that you're a, I think the term you used were you're a Hispanic organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would lead one to wonder whether you, your, your advocacy is for something political or is your advocacy geared towards people who are Hispanic and saying that this, this is not something that is, uh, you, you, you can be silent on. This is something you have to be proactive on. To to the betterment of of the American society, yeah, absolutely. And 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 what we think is, you know, we need the Hispanic voice to to be present in the political discussions. I mean, at this point, we're about eighteen percent of the country, and we're only projected to grow. Uh, for example, over the next, I think it's ten twenty years. About uh, Hispanics are projected to be seventy percent of the workforce. We need to be empowered to be able to engage in our political system. So Libre is is not just talking to Hispanics. We are a Hispanic-led organization. We're coming out of places like McAllen. Um, we're coming from all over the country. And so we are trying to put together a voice for individuals that, that kind of are in the same space as us and are, are fed up with things not moving. So let me get political for, for a moment, because mm-hmm. why not? Um, yeah. you, if, if you were to poll a, a, any subset of, of Americans, they would tell you that people are trying to get into the country from Central America, from South America, are people that the Democratic Party wants to bring in to, th- to make them voters. Mm-hmm. Is, is it your, uh, through your analysis, through your study, through your talking to people, having visited the border, work with Libre, uh, is it your feeling that that's what you would get? People coming who want to come to America who immediately would vote uh, with the Democratic Party? Yeah, I, I've heard this one a lot. Um, and I think it's a really common misconception. It's really simplifying the issue in part because if we're seeing shifts in the Hispanic electorate, the shift that's happening is not moving further and further left. People are shifting right. And part of it is because of the poor decisions that are being made. And in part of the, if we're talking political, the Democratic Party is taking Hispanic voters for granted. And the Republican Party is offering a way forward to make fixes to things that Hispanics care about. And frankly, immigration is not in the top three. The things in the top three are uh, inflation, general economic welfare, uh, healthcare, and education. And these are things that Republicans are pushing on. Things like uh, educational freedom, more options, school choice. If you look at who cares the most about that particular issue, break it down by race, ethnicity, it's Hispanics, about 77%. So there are all these other things we need to take into account. Um, when we talk about people, you know, coming into the country, I don't think it's it's not a smart political play if it is one at all. Um, is to let people in that in from a demographic that is actually shifting right. You can find the complete interview with Isabel Soto from the Libre Initiative over at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today.
so I got asked uh, if it, if I have any opinion. Do I care that Alex Jones is back on Twitter X? And the answer is no. No, I, I, I don't. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, it's, it's good to be with you. Remember, I'm a believer in more speech and not less. So the fact that I'm not an Alex Jones guy is insignificant to whether or not uh, he should be able to, regardless of any issues, be able to have a, a voice. He didn't lose his First Amendment rights. And if you say to me, well, it's a private company, they can do what they want, yes. But I, I think it's fascinating there are people who are still like, oh, shouldn't be allowed to say a word. But then when it comes to university presidents, how dare you try and silence them? I'm not silencing anybody. But you want Twitter to do something, but not the universities. So you got to explain how you make that work. This is Tony Katz today. So what is this lawsuit that the Secretary of State lost? What is it that the Republican Party in Indiana is up against? What's the real issue? And the answer is, we have rights, right? Well, they come before political party, don't they? I think they do. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What's going on? Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Yeah, this cold has been a mother. Oh, my gosh. And it's it's, we're now in the in the coughing stage. And it just, it won't give up. It, it will not quit. And it hurts like what, I believe the term is heck. With, that's how they say it on the radios. If you ask me privately, I will tell you it hurts like something else. The story here is about a guy by the name of John Rust. John Rust is an egg farmer. His family is Rose Acre Farms. We're talking about like maybe the second biggest in the country. They, they produce eggs. Well, the chickens produce eggs. They just, you know, have everything else. And so he wanted to run for Senate. The Republicans are running Congressman Jim Banks from the Indiana 3rd District. He wanted to run against Jim Banks for the primary. Well, there are rules in place in the state of Indiana about that. And one of them uh, says that a candidate's past two primary elections must be cast with the party the candidate is affiliated with or a county party chair has to approve the candidacy. So what John Rust is saying is that, well, I didn't fulfill those requirements, but those requirements are unconstitutional. They're they're vague, they're overly broad. This is silly. John Rust voted in the Republican primary in 2016. He voted in the Democratic primary in 2012. He did not vote in 2020 because of the pandemic, and this is how it's reported by the AP, the, quote, lack of competitive Republican races in Jackson County. Russ said his Democratic votes were for people he personally knew. So in order to run, you have to have voted in the last two primaries for your party if you want to run for that party. That's what the, the, the law currently states. And he says, well, that's, that's silly because there is a, there is a caveat. If you can get the the uh, party chair of that county to sign off, well, then you can run. You get you get certified. So he went to Amanda Lowry, the Jackson County Republican Party chair, and she said no. Because of your primary voting record, I'm not going to certify you. That's the end of that. So John Rust sues. And states that the law keeps these legitimate candidates 
who have recently moved to Indiana or have switched political identifications from running for office. Marion County Superior Court Judge Patrick Dietrich states that the law, quote, unduly burdens Hoosier's long-recognized right to freely associate with the political party of one's choosing and to cast one's vote effectively. So John Rust challenges, John Rust wins. The Secretary of State, Diego Morales, who I am no fan of, uh, he has now appealed the ruling. Now, even if he were to win uh, the, the, the case, he'd be up against Jim Banks, and that doesn't mean he'd necessarily get the nomination. Banks is wildly popular throughout the state. Uh, Banks has got uh, the money. He's been running at this now for, for months. He was able to clear the field of people like Mitch Daniels and, 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 and others. So there's still a, a lot of work for him to do. He also has a quota, a, a signature quota that he has to uh, overcome. But let's leave all that to the side just for the moment. It's the idea of can somebody who wants to run for office run for office? And I think the answer should be yes. Now, I assume that what the party apparatchik would state is that we want to ensure that people aren't running for the wrong reasons or people aren't running just to do damage to the system. We want them to be Republicans running for the Republican ticket. And if they want to run as a Republican, well, these are are the basic rules. It does find, find a place of peculiarity to the idea that people can't change their mind. As a matter of fact, when people do change their mind, we celebrate the living daylights out of them. Now we're saying, okay, you changed your mind. Our, our, our uh, persuasiveness was effective. Now you have to wait two election cycles before you can run for office. One could argue that that actually creates a good safety net. But one could also argue that that takes away from a person's right to seek public office. I've talked about, for example, people moving to Indiana from California. And after me, I was not in favor of anybody moving from California to Indiana. I was the last one, and and we would have been much better off. What I stated, though, many times, is that people who move from anywhere from one state to another should not be allowed to vote in a local election for three years. Oh, I've absolutely said it. I mean it. You come into a new state. You've got all the craziness from the old state you were in. You haven't even bothered to learn the system. Next thing you know, you're voting for nonsense. No. You take some time and you learn the system. On a local level, on a state level, nope. I would never stop anybody from voting on a federal level. Couldn't do that. And of course, no one's buying into my idea, but you know that I'm right. The difference between these two things is that I'm saying you should learn where you are and how where you are works and why it works, why it was so attractive to you to move there in the first place before you start casting your vote in a way that could be, you know, and the antithesis of the reasons and the values that you went to that place to begin with. Know the place first. And I, 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 get, I get all the pushback in the world on this. I never asked, well, would I stop somebody from running for office? And the answer is, nah, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't think that I would have the ability or want it for that matter to take away your right to be a citizen. Well, you'll take away my voting right. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't force you to move, kitten. I think you should learn where you're at. And besides, what I want isn't even a law. But here we're saying that somebody doesn't have the right to run for office. They have to meet a threshold. They have to meet a standard. And I guess the question is, outside of age requirements as prescribed by the Constitution, where else is there a standard? How you voted previously? Well, how you voted previously could be a reason for me not to vote for you. But that wouldn't be a reason for you not to be able to run for office. So I, I must ask, what is it that is, is now being um, appealed here? What possibly is the Secretary of State appealing in this case that the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, for that matter, can decide whether or not a citizen can run for office based on their, their, their calculations? So now I have to uh, wonder whether or not the system is proper to begin with? And wouldn't that mean that I don't actually have privacy in my vote if, if you know which party? Now that you can tell me, no, there's a hundred ways to know which party you voted for and, and what people are registered for and all those kinds of things. And I, and, I, and I guess that's accurate. But keeping people from voting seems odd. And that's what it looks like. It looks like there's an argument here to keep people, from, not, not from voting, to keep people from running. To keep people from running for office seems odd to me. Seems like a, a seems like a problem waiting to happen, I guess is the way to call it. And so I don't understand what Diego Morales is is going to appeal here. I don't I, I haven't read where he said, uh, look, I think here's the 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 issue. If I if I have it right, the Secretary of State is, State is going to appeal the ruling. The Indiana Attorney General's office filed the notice of appeal on behalf of the Secretary of State, right? He's doing his job. I honestly don't know where it is. I don't. Now, if you ask me about what I think of John Rust, I have met John Rust once in my life. It was a handshake. He was pleasant. Do I think he's an awkward dude? Yeah, I think he's an awkward dude. The end. That is the total end of what I know about the guy. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing anywhere else. I just can't figure out what is, the, what is being appealed here. A guy who wants to run for office should be able to run for office. I think it's weird that you're appealing the ruling. You have to know, the party apparatus has to know that their rules, their rules just, just on, on their face are super weird. Super weird and super wrong. And so when people are talking about this, they'll, they'll, they'll sometimes just get into the, uh, um, they, they may want to delve into, into more personalities. I wasn't interested in the personalities.
If you want to run for office, you should be able to run for office. And I don't know if we want to be the people who make it more difficult to run for office. I'd be curious to know a little bit more about when these laws got put into place and how were they never challenged then? And then realizing, I mean, just in the in the basic way we've had the conversation, what is the argument for trying to appeal them now? Because I haven't I haven't found it yet. I haven't found the argument that makes sense for appealing the decision. But as I said, it's the uh, it's the Secretary of State of Indiana, Diego Morales. Maybe uh, it's my fault for trying to look for something rational from that guy. Yeah, there's no way he's Secretary of State next year, right? Please tell me there's no way. Yeah, there's, there's just, there can be no way. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. So Hamas is cracking. They're surrendering. Some of them see the writing on the wall as the Israeli Defense Forces has hit over 250 targets, ground operations, aerial operations, naval operations across the Gaza Strip, and that just in 24 hours over the weekend. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. And now the photos of Hamas fighters cuffed and in their underwear. Because I guess when you're surrendering, you strip down to your underwear to prove that you have no weapons on you. Because how could you trust any of these terrorists at all? I think maybe one of the questions is, why are they surrendering? Well, some of it could have uh, things to do with uh, with Yaha Sinwar, who is uh, the Hamas leader. Remember, he's the Hamas leader in Gaza. He is not the leader of Hamas who gets all the money and lives in Qatar or Qatar, depending on how you on how you state it. The word on the street is that uh, the people hate Sinwar. As a matter of fact, it has been uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, saying, "Do not die for this man. Don't let this let this man lead you to ruin." And of course, trying to divide the people uh, in, 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 in that way. So if they've been able to create a boogeyman uh, of him, well, that's, that's positive in, in breaking the will uh, of Hamas. Certainly amongst the people of Gaza, you, you, they, you could take a look at polling from these people to the extent that, the, that you know, they, they are able to get true numbers. Of course they blame Hamas. They know that their life is terrible. But it's also true that there are plenty of people who cheer what Hamas does. Now, you could argue they're only doing that because they know that Hamas will attack them if they don't or they want to get extra kind of preferential treatment, maybe food, whatever the case may be. So they cheer this, they cheer that, and then hopefully a little a bit of scraps ends up on, on their table. It's possible. It's also possible that there are plenty of people in Gaza who absolutely want to destroy Israelis and kill Jews. I think that's unquestionable. It is equally, to my mind, unquestionable that there are plenty of people who want to live free. We have known that there have been people in Gaza who have wanted to do away with Hamas, who have tried to rise up against Hamas, and they have been bloodied, and they have been beaten, beaten, beaten 
because uh, they, they've been unsuccessful because Hamas is a terrorist organization that has control of the area because they're supported financially by Iran. If the rational mind had taken hold of any of these leftists, they would have understood that everything would be better if Hamas was gone, and then they could have applied the pressure to Israel aggressively to make life better. But no, instead, they went the anti-Israel route, the Jew haters like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Andre Carson and Jamal Bowman. Then they went crazy thinking about the idea that if Hamas was gone, Israel would have to take over Gaza Strip for a short while. Because after all, who's going to run this place? The Gazans uh, cannot run it on their own. The quote-unquote Palestinians, they can't run it on their own. They have no idea how to do it. None. Zero idea how to do it. And Israel's like, well, we would do it for for a short while. And then the United States is like, well, that's unacceptable. What are you going to have, a UN team? How terrible do you want it to be for the people of Gaza? You want it to be UN team terrible. That's, That's messed up. That is messed up. But the surrendering. I must tell you that I'm a little bothered by the surrendering because I think it puts a uh, bit of onus on on the Israelis um, in in that one that would not exist if these people had just been destroyed. And you say to me, Tony, that's pretty bloodthirsty. No, I'm just discussing a reality here. You create an opportunity. Now these people are going to be prisoners. Now these prisoners have to be uh, provided for. And now you're giving others an opportunity to kidnap more Israelis, and now you've got some hostage thing. You're going to work from from that, and you know, a negotiation. Let these people go, and they're going to go back and do this again. I just, I'm, I'm just saying that there are issues within this. But maybe I just got to be thankful that they're cracking. Maybe I got to be thankful that that uh, the people of Gaza see what what cowards these terrorist low life bastards are. I would love it if the college campuses of Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and MIT along with those right here in Indiana, you know, learn from this. Look at these terrible terrorist cowards. Never support them. I only hope that lesson is learned by those who need to learn it. And I know there are plenty of people who never supported them to begin with, and they deserve our respect. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.